0: From here, David, he meets with Saul and he says, even though I'm young, here's what you got to know. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This Philistine is going to be just like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And so David essentially says, I don't have the skills. I don't have the weaponry, but here's what I do have. If we look at outward appearances, oh Saul, there's no way I can win. There's no way I can win. But with God on my side, there's no way I can lose. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at GatewayCRC.org.
1: And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Chris Dreistra, and uh, Juanita and I have been worshiping in this church for 24 years, almost to the day. Uh, We've got five kids, three of which we look forward to seeing this week, hopefully. Daniel, Joshua, Rachel, Reuben, and Caleb. Uh, Right now, we're involved with Summit and with life groups. We're gonna be reading from 1 Samuel 17, uh, verse 40 to 54. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. He despised him. He said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherem Road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're looking at a story that needs no introduction.
0: I mean, think about this with me. There's, there's a lot of different stories in the Bible that both churchgoers and the unchurched community know about. You can think about Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you can think about Noah in the ark or Jonah and the big fish. But David and Goliath is the only story in the entire Bible that's so well known that, that I would argue after the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is no story that is more popular than this one. And it takes on its own kind of special form in that this story has been memorialized, if you will, as a metaphor for life. Right? We think about the David and Goliath story all the time. In the face of insurmountable odds, you can rise up like David and you can win the battle. I even think about, I'm, I'm a big fan of basketball and when I was in college, I would never miss March Madness. And invariably, every single year, an announcer would say during the one seed versus the 16 seed, today is a battle against David and Goliath. Now, what, what is he saying when he says that? He's not saying, don't you know the story? David won. No, he's saying David doesn't have a chance. Doesn't stand a chance. And so that's what I find so interesting about this. It it sort of gets transported into a hope-filled message that if you can just pull up your own bootstraps like David did, you can face those insurmountable odds. So here's the way that we often think about this story today. We might say something like, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Any Journey fans in the crowd today? Anyone like Journey? Maybe you remember the song, um, Don't Stop Believin', Hang On To That feeling, right? So there's one of the ways that we think about this. Or uh, what about Malcolm Gladwell? Maybe there's some people here who have read one of his books. He wrote a book on this, and it literally said, the book's name is David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Let me summarize it for you in five seconds. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, Right? And so he gives an example of uh, maybe there's you were a kid who grew up with dyslexia, and because of that you really struggled in school, but it could also help you become a better listener and more resilient and strong as a young person. Or he gave another example of maybe uh, you lost a parent or a loved one as a kid, but on account of that you could grow in character and in resilience. Right? So every challenge that you face, every David moment, you could rise up and become a more resilient person. That's the Malcolm Gladwell take. Or perhaps you recall when you were growing up in Sunday school, maybe you had a Sunday school teacher who said something like this: Boys and girls, boys and girls, look, look, listen, listen. Quiet coyotes, right? They probably said something like that. Here's what you gotta know: you need to be just like David. And face those odds and put your trust in God. And in that way, you will be able to face the giants of your life one day. And then when we get a little bit older, maybe it's the Jordan Peterson take, that each of us, we're like David, and we have to face the odds in our finances, in our business, in our marriage. we got to pull up our own bootstraps. And so what I'm telling you is I think this story has been treated as a metaphor for life, but it misses the main point of the story. What if I shared with you that the David versus Goliath story has been told to you wrong? And oftentimes what we take away from it, not just in unchurched world, not just our unchurched and unbelieving family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors, but even in the church we miss the point, the main thing, the main thrust of the story of David and Goliath. So, Here's here's what I need you to do for me this morning. I need you to turn and look at your neighbor for a second, and you need to tell them it's not about you. All right? Look at your neighbor. It's not about you. It's not about you. There's your daily dose of encouragement pre-Christmas. Thanks so much for doing that. Here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is 66 books written by over 40 authors written over different centuries, and yet, this is the way I put it in your note sheet it is one cohesive story about the salvation and the work of Jesus Christ. One cohesive story about Jesus and what he is doing in the world. In other words, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about how can I become more like David? How can I pull up my own bootstraps? The question of the story is, who is the real giant? Who's the real hero? And who am I in relation to those characters? That's the story that we need to see within this. Every single story in scripture whispers the name of Jesus and points to his fulfillment through his death and resurrection. And that's what we have to see. So what it's going to take this morning is some fresh eyes, an open heart, and an open mind to the possibility that your interpretation of this very familiar story is wrong. Is wrong. So let's take a look at this. If you've got your Bibles, let's start at chapter 17, verse 1. First Samuel 17, verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soka and Azekah. Now, let's just stop right there for a quick second. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that the Philistines would keep showing up in this story. You might recall all the way back in chapter 4... God delivered Israel from none other than the Philistines, and instantly the people of Israel said, we trust you, we will put our trust in you, you are our warrior, you are our king, you will fight our battles, and literally a verse later they said, you know what, Um, on second thought, we want our own earthly king to go out and fight our battles for us, just like all the other nations, and God treats that as a rejection of him, right? And then he hands them over to Saul. He said, you sold it. You asked for it. And he gives them Saul, who's a head and shoulder taller than everyone else. They said, he's the guy. He's going to go out and fight all of our battles. Well, now they're fighting the Philistines again, even though God gave them the victory through no intervention of their own. Now they're fighting the Philistines again. Let's see how it turns out. Verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle battle lines to meet the Philistines. This means they're in Israel at this time. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits. And a span. And I, I wanted you to get a sense of just how big Goliath is. So here's what I did. Uh, we got a picture up here on the screen. This is a picture of Robert Wadlow. He is eight feet, 11 inches, the tallest man in human history since the in- invention of the camera. And so you can see this picture, just how huge he is. When you read um, what you read in your Bible, That says that Goliath is three meters tall, or nine feet, eight inches. So if Goliath was in this picture, his head would be out of the frame. He could take his elbow and lean it on Robert's head. That's how big Goliath is. He was huge. He was enormous. And then we read this in verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor, take note of that, we're going to come back to it later, of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels or 125 pounds. His armor is heavier than most of you. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels or 16 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and light up for battle? That's my Goliath voice, by the way. I won't do it the whole day. Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. It's so interesting to me the way that the story plays out. The author spends so much time talking about the strength, the height, the weight, the power of Goliath, of this giant. Any of you here like to bowl? Any bowlers out there? Are, there? are there any of you who have your own bowling ball? Almost none of you. All right, so you're like the most of us. When you go bowling, you know, you rent the shoes, and then you go up to the rack, and you pick a bowling ball, and if you bowl, you know that there's various different weights. But the heaviest ball you can get is 16 pounds. I don't know about you, I don't touch those things, my arms are too scrawny, so I usually pick like 12, 13, 14 pounds, that's enough for me, and typically only pros or big burly people like Ben Aaron's get the 16 pounders, right? They're strong enough for those, but not me. And, but here's what's really interesting about this, the tip of his spear is 16 pounds. That's what he throws around like a dart, Right? And I can't even lift it when I'm bowling. That's how strong and burly this guy is. He is a fearsome force. He is to be feared. The author wants you to feel it, to know it, just how strong this guy is. He wants you to see it. Goliath continues, verse 9. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Circle, highlight, underline. Give me a man, let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The first 11 verses... 11 verses that are devoted to highlighting this monstrosity of a man named Goliath. Nine feet, eight inches, all of his armor combined. We know just his breastplate was 125 pounds, probably 200 pounds, just his armor laid out before him. He has a spear where the tip is 16 pounds. He throws that around like a dart. This is the fearsome man that stands before all of Israel. And then now look at verse 16. It says, For forty days, that's an important number, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Forty days, really interesting. The author wants you to remember something. The first verse in this section highlights all these names right that maybe the majority of us in this room they're like what what are all the names there for what do they represent geographically i can't really picture where those things are here's what you got to know it's in the valley of canaan it's in judah it is in israel where this battle is taking place some other things have happened in our bible's history in that location also it's been 40 days So here's what you need to remember. This is not the first time that Israel has had to face giants. After they were delivered out of Egypt... And the Red Sea, the Yam Suf, was parted, and they went through on dry ground, and then they went into the wilderness. Eventually, they made their way to Canaan, which is modern-day Israel and Palestine and the Gaza Strip, all that whole section. They finally made it to their location, and God said, I have delivered this place into your hands. This is the promised land. It has been given to you. Go and take it. Moses takes 12 men, and he says, go spy out the land and come back to us. Two men give a positive report, Caleb and Joshua. The other 10, they say, we cannot take this land. Here's what they say. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, giants. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder." Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And the end result of their disobedience is that they had to walk around in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. Well, that's interesting. So here's what you got to see in these two stories. They are in the Valley of Elah within this story, and so is Israel Israel as they are about to enter into the land of promise. They disobey God because they see giants, and they need to walk around for 40 years. And here's Israel, they're in the Valley of Elah, and for 40 days, Goliath has been standing up and said, come and fight me! And no one will fight. Because they are terrified. So what you gotta see here is, this is the story of the promised land in reverse. In reverse, Israel under King Saul has, in effect, gone back out into the wilderness, cowering cowering in fear about giants and not putting their trust in God, only putting their trust in what their eyes can see. And what they see is a behemoth of a man. And they say, I don't like the odds. I'm not going to win that battle. For 15 chapters, we have seen Israel doing what is right in their own eyes. For 15 chapters, we see Israel making exactly the same mistakes as their forefathers, choosing to look at the outward appearance. And so they find a king who is head and shoulders taller than everyone else, and they say, that's king material. That's our guy. He's going to go out and fight our battles for us. He's going to lead us into victory. God said, I'll do that for you. I've already done it for you already. Why would you do that? They said, nope, you're great and all, but we want an earthly king just like Saul. And God says, you asked for it. And now here's his chance. Here's Saul's chance to do exactly what Israel wanted him to do. This is the whole reason why they picked Saul to be their king. Here's the end result. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. That's the end result for Saul. The reason why they chose Saul as king was because he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was, in essence, their strong and capable giant. He was their man of war. He was their champion. And when the time comes for him to do what they wanted him to do, he's cowering in fear and he does not move forward. So then we get to verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are uh, are and bring back some insurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So we heard about Jesse last week. Old man Jesse, he had seven sons, or so we thought at the beginning. Samuel comes, he says, one of your sons is going to be anointed today as the future king of Israel. He goes through all seven sons. God says, they're not the ones. God has rejected them. Do you happen to have another son? And Jesse says, well, I I got an eighth son But uh, he's tending sheep. He's the runt of the litter. Samuel says, bring him forward. And then when he finally gets there, he says, yes, this is the one. And they anoint him as the future king of Israel. So that's Jesse, right? And Jesse, during this moment, he is afraid. Because he knows how wars work out during that time. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Braveheart or the movie uh, Gladiator? You know that during those times you had one army on one side, another army on the other side. And then everyone would uh, shout out and they would blow the horns. And then they would just go in and start stabbing and fighting and kicking and screaming. And at the end, you, you after maybe a day, you'd find out who won the victory. It has been 40 days. What's going on? And so he's worried. All his oldest sons are at the front of the battle lines. They're supposed to be fighting. These are his kids. It's his insurance, his legacy, his boys. What's going on? David, bring me a report. And so he gives David all the ingredients for a deconstructed pizza. And he says, go and deliver this to the the battle lines and let me know what's happening there. And that's precisely what David does. Verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. Quick note on this. Do you remember the last time we saw David or uh, Saul with the supplies? As he was just about to be inaugurated as the king, he was hiding with the supplies. So already the author wants us to see a difference between Saul and David. He leaves his things with the keeper of the supplies and he ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped up from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. It's been happening like clockwork for 40 days every morning and every night. The Israelites, the Philistines, they draw their battle lines, they shout their rants, they blow the horns, and just, is today going to be the day? Are we going to go out and fight today? Goliath stands out and he says, bring me one man. And they cower in fear. He has been defying the armies of the living God. He's been cursing God for 40 days, morning and night, 80 times, 80 times he has done this. But today is the first day that David has heard about it. And here's his response, verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So, look, Saul, the king of Israel, he's been upping the ante quite a few times now. At least three times we've seen this. And it kind of reminds me of my college days when Julie and I were attending Dort and then later we were attending Calvin Seminary. Oftentimes, like many of our university students, you're traveling around Christmas in fact, we've spent a few Christmas Eves in airports together. Really fun, beautiful. So one thing that we had to do is when you're around that time, you know this about airlines. Oftentimes, what they do around their busy season is they overbook flights. So frustrating. So invariably, you have like a, an intern or a first year uh, airline um, stewardess or uh, attendant, and they'll get up on the intercom and they'll say, Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, we need at least two people to get off the flight and to maybe fly tomorrow on christmas day and we'll give a $100 voucher for anyone who's willing to do it and everyone's offended right because 100 bucks you want me to skip christmas eve for 100 bucks and so everyone's just kind of annoyed and then she'll come back out later and she'll say okay okay i talked to my boss $200 $300, any takers? 400 500 And by 500 this is the point where Julie usually is willing to flake out. She's like, 500 bucks. Like, we're in debt, right? $500, bucks, we will do it. And I'm like, no, 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 Julie, 500 bucks. We will get there, but not 500 And then we look over the room and we see other university students. They look just as poor as us. $80,000 in debt from school, right? They, they look desperate the same way we do. So we just start talking together and we say, all right, here's the deal. 800 bucks each, plus a hotel, plus food vouchers, then we'll take the deal. And then, finally, when they're getting to that point, they'll say, all right, $800, plus a free meal, plus a hotel. And I sprint to the front, and I just beat the other university student. That's the way it's done, all right? (laughs) That's the way. In the story, Saul is the flight attendant. So he starts on day one, he says, so hi everyone, Um, I know you expect me to go out and fight that thing, I'm not doing it, but if anyone's willing to go out and fight that behemoth of a man, nine foot, eight inches, you know, 200 pounds of armor, throws around this spear that looks like a dart, you know, 20 pound spear, you know, uh, he has been fighting since he's three years old, superweight champion of the world, you know, you want to go out and fight him, risk your life, probably die, I'll give uh, $1,000 for anyone who's willing to do that. $2,000? $5,000? Two thousand dollars, five five thousand. How about how about ten? And every day it goes up. Twenty, 100000 hundred. What about riches beyond your wildest dreams? Still, no one goes up. He says, "All right, I'll up the ante. You can marry one of my daughters, fame and fortune. How about that?" Still nothing. And I'm telling you, for this third offer, if there was a Canadian in the room, they would have jumped to the front. He says, "All right, final deal. Final deal. No taxes for life." Unfortunately, there was no Canadian in the army. And so still, nobody, nobody steps up. After all of that, what's a king to do? And you see how much things have, uh, have devolved for Saul. You can imagine that every single morning and every night when Goliath speaks his defiance and says, send me one man, everyone in the ranks of Israel, got, you got to be thinking, they're looking over at Saul, saying like, that's their giant. That's their big guy. You're ours. Like, Isn't that the reason why we made you king in the first place? Go out there and fight our battle for us. And yet, he won't. Because he's afraid. But this is the first time in all of this that we see the response of David. The first time we've ever seen David speak And it's in verse uh, 26. Look at this with me. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Before this week, it has never dawned on me before that the very first words of David in the whole Bible is, What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What does the man get for defeating this guy? And I don't want to draw too much out of this, but I want you to see that... I think this verse all by itself is a foreshadowing of the person of David, the conflictedness of his story. For 38 verses, you are going to see the heart of David that is totally devoted to the Lord. That is why he says what he says in um, verse 27. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He is outraged by what this man is saying about God. And yet he has a head that's often going to get him into trouble. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What will the king give me? Women, fortune, fame? And then to draw this out, the author does it again. Go down to verse 30. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. What will the king give? And the men answered him as before. So what we see in the story is that the first four accounts of David speaking are as follows. What's in it for me? What about God's honor? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? The first four times David speaks, that's what he speaks to. Now, I think the author is trying to communicate something to you about the story. David is not the hero you think he is. Even though we often make him out to be, Remember, 66 books in your Bible, more than 40 different human authors over various different centuries, and it's all about broken people in a broken world who insist on breaking things, and yet the story is also that God is willing to use said broken people to bring about his redemption in the world. David is not the hero. He is a foreshadowing of the true and greater hero within our biblical story, Jesus. And the author wants you to see this right here and right now. The next 38 chapters, we will see a heart of God, devoted to God, but a head that's often going to get him into trouble. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Make no mistake, David is not the main hero of the story. God will use him. God will use him. But he's not the main hero in the story. There's one more part of the story that I want to draw out for you before we get to the battle itself, and it's in verse 5. If you've got your Bibles open, look with me at verse 5. It says that Goliath was wearing scale armor. Do you see that? Scale armor. This is the only time in the entire Bible in which that Hebrew word is used in association with clothing. All the other times, it's used in one of two ways. The scale of a fish and the scale of a snake or a serpent. That's really interesting. I think what the author is trying to draw out for you is Goliath, he's, he's not just a giant. He's being depicted as a giant snake. And that should bring you all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So here's, here's a bit of a recap for you. In chapter 11, Saul, he went up against Nahash Whose name literally means serpent. It's the same word for serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And now in chapter 17, David is going up against the serpent. Both of them face the serpent. So hang on to that. We're going to keep reading now. From here, David, he meets with Saul, and he says, even though I'm young, here's what you got to know. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This Philistine is going to be just like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And so David essentially says, I don't have the skills, I don't have the weaponry, but here's what I do have. I put it this way in your note sheet. If we look at outward appearances, O oh Saul, there's no way I can win. There's no way I can win. But if with God on my side, there's no way I can lose. That's the heart of faith. That's the heart of faith. And so here's, here's a question that I want to lay at your feet this morning, friends. Do you trust that God will do what he says he will do? Do you trust that God will do what he says he will do? Even in the face of insurmountable odds. Even in the face of dying and sickness and death and poverty, recession, stress, pain, in the midst of all the circumstances of life, do you trust God to do what he says he will do? That's the question that the author wants you to ask. So Saul, essentially, he says, all right, go and God be with you. But it's so interesting, even after David's speech, it's all about God, not about me. Saul instantly says, but at the very least, put on some armor. And David says, no, I, like, I can't. It's going to bog me down. I haven't practiced in those things. And you're still thinking about the armor. You're still looking with your human eyes. God has this. So he takes all the armor off, and then he goes down to a stream. Verse 40. Look at this with me. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine." Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. There was nothing in David that he was afraid of, nothing at all. And quite frankly, he felt like he was being mocked. He felt like he was being shamed. And we see that with what he says next. He said to David, am I a dog? That you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Circle, highlight, underline. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. He will give all of you into our hands. So David essentially says to Goliath, You compare size, but I compare weapons. You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you with the power of the living God. I like my odds. I like my odds. And that's what the story is all about. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, and struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, it's really interesting where the story goes next. He's already dead. Goliath is dead, right? So you'd think that the story is over. And yet, something is about to happen in this story that I think we cannot miss. I shared with you earlier that Goliath was wearing scales. He's being depicted as the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And we know that after Adam and Eve fail against their serpent and they commit sin, the first sin in humanity, instantly God, even before rejecting Adam and Eve and sending them out of the garden, he makes a promise, a covenant promise, and he issues it to the snake. Here's what he says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. That's important. And you will strike his heel. Now back to verse 51. It says this. David ran and stood over him, He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. He cut off his head with the sword. I find that really interesting. So here's what you got to see. This is a partial fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. And even more important than that, it is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus so with the very little time that we have left, I I want you to see what this story is all about. It's not about the heroics of David. It's not about the heroics of Saul. David is not the the snake crusher. Yes, Saul defeats Nahash. Yes, uh, David defeats Goliath. But it's not about Saul and David. It's about the one to whom these stories point. Years later... Jesus, too, would go out into the wilderness for no more and no less than 40 days. And just like David, he would face off against the snake. And just like Saul would try to do to David... Uh, the, The serpent in this story, he would try to entice Jesus with fortune and fame. He would say, I'll give you the whole kingdom of the earth. If you would just bow down and worship me, just ask the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? I'll give you anything you've ever wanted. Just bow down. And Jesus would deny him in obedience to the will of his heavenly father. And unlike David, he would never ask what's in it for me instead he would totally empty himself for the sake of the one thing he didn't have what didn't he have friends he didn't have you he didn't have me and so he willingly emptied himself so that he could make a way for you the joy of his salvation I love the way that Tim Chester puts it he says this In the same way, we, as it were, standing on the hillside, surveying the story of history. Down in the valley, we see Christ, Jesus, entering the battle, armed only with a beam of wood strapped on his shoulders. We see him face the snake. There is Jesus, like David, appearing small compared to the might of the Roman Empire, appearing weak compared to the the power of the snake. But he enters the battle bravely. He entrusts himself to God. And as we look, we see defeat turn into victory as Jesus bursts from the tomb. The snake is defeated. His head is crushed. And it's for that reason that we can sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. What does interposed mean? It means to mediate. It means to stand in the gap. It means to be a champion for you. And that's what Jesus was for us. The true and greater champion. Far greater than David. Far greater. And so here's the last point in your note sheet. Jesus, the true David, crushed the head of the snake for us. He crushed the head of the snake for us. So here's the question I want to leave with you this week as we enter into Christmas week. Next week will be Christmas Eve. And then the following Monday, Christmas Day, the question I want to leave you with today is this. Do you trust God to do what he says he will do? If you see Jesus for who he truly is, you will have bold, audacious courage. See, when the world sees a giant, the world will always say, how could I possibly defeat that? But when a Christian sees a giant, a Christian says, how could I miss that's a huge target for the living God. What perspective do you have? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? I pray that you do. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please
1: join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.